Good morning, Midlands Church. I'll be reading from John 7, 14 through 31. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but it is but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but, it, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If, if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that, that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than, than this man has done? Thanks, Amy, for reading the scripture uh, this morning. Um, Midlands, it's good to be together again, even though it's virtual. Uh, um, just enjoy our time together and being able to do this. Let's open in prayer. Father, we just thank you for this time, and we thank you for your word that you've given us this morning that we're going to look through, Father. And uh, Father, I just pray that uh, through the awkwardness of uh, of preaching to yourself on a computer screen and, and not being able to see faces and interact, Father, I just pray and, and very thankful that we still can gather, even if it's virtually, and, um, and worship you as a body still. So, Father, I just pray that you'll be with me this morning and just overcome any of my uh, anxiety or inadequacies as we work through the scripture, Father, and, and speak to uh, speaking to myself on a screen, Father. It's just unusual, Lord, but um, but I'm thankful uh, again that we're able to do that. So, Father, just be with us um, as we work through this passage this morning. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Okay, last week uh, Aaron started in. Um, beginning of chapter 7, and he told, told you a little bit about the uh, Feast of Booths, or also known as the Feast of Tabernacles. So I want to kind of reiterate a little bit about what this feast is about. It's not uh, some cultural feast to celebrate a harvest. It's not the Fall Family Fun Festival of Israel in the first century. Um, God himself actually established this feast. You can look in Leviticus chapter 23, uh, verses 33 through 43, actually, um, where it's prescribed. He actually says when it's going to be. It's going to be after the harvest in the seventh month, uh, a week long. And in their situation, they, they included weeks, the extra, the full eight days. Um, so from a fall celebration for God's provision. So there were sacrifices all eight days, and there were special days of worship and rest on the first and eighth, day, eighth days. 
and fruit and branches of trees were carried in a procession uh, at one point, um, and all the people would reside for the entire length of the feast in booths or tents, temporary tent structures, and it was to commemorate God's provision um, during the Exodus. So you can look in Leviticus and see that this is uh, this is not a man-made, a man-established feast. God actually established this. And it was a feast to celebrate God's provision, like we said, as he sustained the Israelites in the wilderness. So when we look at um, our scripture here, we're starting in verse 14. And it says, uh, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. So Jesus actually is essentially crashing his own party because Jesus is the provision of God. So Jesus Christ, God's provision for our sins, is now teaching in the temple during the feast to celebrate God's provision. So I think that's interesting. And then so in verse 15, he starts talking and he says, um, The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? And that phrase, never studied, um, it actually means he's never received any, they knew he had not received any formal training to be a rabbi. Um, but yet, even in that time, it was really common for families, uh, men of that day, to be able to read and to be able to comprehend scripture because of family training, kind of like our devotionals that we do as families today. And then regular uh, synagogue worship, you would learn. So it was like going to church today, where you study your Bible at home, you do your devotion time, and and then you would go to worship and you would learn more about God there. And so um, even though he didn't have formal training, um, it was common during that time for men to be able to read and, and, uh, and understand scripture. So as I was preparing for the uh, message today, I was reading through different um, commentaries. And uh, one of the commentaries we use is by R.C. Sproul. And he starts off by talking about his educational experience. And he starts in third grade. I don't know why he didn't include um, kindergarten, first and second grade, but he starts in third grade and he said kids, he really loved third grade, but kids in the fourth grade said, oh, it's going to get worse next year because there'll be more that you have to learn. And it, it kind of, he talks about the progression of education. So he continued on and actually he eventually got his PhD. And here's what he said. Let me read it. It said, um, as I completed my academic work, so when he finishes his PhD, he said something I thought was very interesting. He said, I realized that there were many of us who had been educated well beyond our intelligence. So, um, I don't know, I have, a, I have a bachelor's degree in civil engineering, I have an MDiv, um, and maybe, maybe I've been educated beyond my intelligence. I don't know. Um, but it, I can understand where he's coming from when he says that, because you have to be careful um, to put your education into perspective and and realize um, where the knowledge is coming from. So he also says this, he says, uh, one danger in the upper levels of education is that once we get through them, we have a tendency to think, and he's just talking in general here, we have a tendency to think we actually know far more than we do. And we also have a tendency to tilt the nose a bit, as he calls it, so to look down on those who have not gone through such rigorous training. So. We do, uh, as a society today, we put a lot of emphasis on people's uh, degrees and their credentials. And I'm not saying they're not important. Um, you know, having an MDiv is important, but uh, especially when you study through theology, I think the more you study, uh, 
um, that your humility should increase and your pride should decrease because you're understanding that it's not you. Like you're really understanding that your knowledge uh, is, is God-given. And so we should be very, very thankful for that. But when it comes to credentials, we do put a lot of emphasis on that in our society. So I want to tell you a story uh, about credentials and, and how it kind of put things into perspective for me. So uh, I had a professor at Clemson, and his name was Jack McCormick. And we, uh, we called him Happy Jack. We didn't comment to his face, uh, but it was not. It was a term of endearment. Everybody I knew really liked him. He, he was a, a brilliant man. He was a great teacher. Um, and we called him Happy Jack because he was like always in a good mood, always smiling. Just It was fun to be in his classes, and I had him for multiple classes. So Professor McCormick, he, he has a, uh, a bachelor's degree from the Citadel. He got his master's from MIT. So this guy, he had some... He had some heavy-duty credentials because the Citadel is a great school for civil engineering, and MIT is a fantastic engineering school. So he went to Clemson. He was a professor there, and uh, and he's actually still uh, alive. He's in his 90s now. But he wrote uh, a bunch of civil engineering textbooks, and um, I had many of them, uh, probably five or six of them in just the classes that I took because I was focused on construction and um strength of materials and structural steel strength and th those kind of things. And his text, I looked it up, his texts have actually been used at over 500 universities in the world. And Engineering News Record, which is a, um, a magazine, they put out a magazine, but they actually selected him for the list of the 125 greatest engineers or architects in the world in the discipline of construction for the last 125 years. That's pretty significant. So anyway, when, when uh, Jack was a professor, young professor at Clemson, um, he had his undergrad, he had his master's, but he didn't have a PhD. And so the dean of the College of Engineering called him in and said, look, I, I want you to get one because um, universities were starting to move to that point where if you didn't have a PhD, um, you know, there was some this thought that, oh, maybe you're not as educated as you need to be or, or know enough. So, so Jack said, all right. And so uh, I don't know if it was because um, he had family in the area or he, this is just where he chose, but he went to, uh, from what I understand, he went to Purdue University and he was going to start his PhD program in the summer while he was on break from his teaching responsibilities at Clemson. And so he goes into his first class and, uh, and the teacher, the professor, hands out the syllabus, and I'm sure everybody picked it up and smelled it. And if you're of a certain age, you uh, you know why you did that. Um, but if you, most of y'all probably have no idea what I'm talking about, so ask your parents or ask your grandparents. But so anyway, he pat they would the professor passed out the syllabus, and then he picked up the book and he said, "Okay, this is the book that we're going to be using," and it was Structural Steel by Jack McCormick. It was a book that Jack had actually written himself. So he was a super polite guy, so he stayed for the remainder of the first class, and then he promptly thanked the professor, went straight to the registrar's office, and um, and dropped out of the PhD program. He went back to Clemson. He went back to the dean, and he said, hey, he told him the story, and he said, if you can find a, a reputable PhD program that doesn't use uh, my books, then I'll be happy to... Um, uh, to get my PhD, and uh, he never did. 
Um, I don't know if the uh, if they couldn't find a university that didn't use his books, or if the the dean backed off. But what he what happened was um, he eventually actually uh, got an honorary doctorate from Clemson. But uh, one thing that I know for sure, uh, as smart as Professor McCormick was, he he was never even if he had gotten his PhD, he would have never been educated from an engineering perspective beyond his intelligence. He's just He's just um, brilliant. But today, in today's academic world, he probably won't be able to get a job as a professor, at least not um, of uh, college students, because we put a lot of focus on people's degrees. Um, but knowledge is a lot more than just a piece of paper. Uh, one of the smartest people I know um, has uh, just has a high school uh, diploma, but a very, very intelligent person, one of Leanne's uncles. But um, so anyway, when the Jews are questioning this, at that time, when they say they never studied, the traditional thing was you would study under a rabbi. So you would study under this teacher, so you would have their authority kind of backing up where you what you were teaching. So that was really, really important in that time. So nobody would put me on a list of, to, of the top 125 engineers, except maybe Leanne and Sierra and Leah. Um, but I did actually sit under the teaching of someone who was one of the 125 best engineers of the 20th century. So, to put it in back in the Jesus time frame, if Jesus had had claimed he was self-taught, or that his um, message was his alone, and he was bringing this new thing to them, and it was just his thinking, the leaders of the day would have immediately discredited him and said he was arrogant. So, because the tradition of channels weren't followed, the regular rabbi training uh, had not authorized Jesus. The people wanted to know, where did he get his insight and his authority? Because from his teaching, they knew, they could tell that this, this guy is talking about things that he shouldn't know this well and understand this well because he doesn't have the background that you should have for that. And so Jesus answered them. In verse 16, he said, uh, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. And back in Sproul's commentary, he said, if you, were at, if you were to ask a group of Christians today, where did Jesus get the knowledge he displayed when he taught at the temple? He said the, the most common answer you would get was probably, well, he's God. I mean, Jesus is God in the flesh, so it's, it's his knowledge. He would know that. And I grew up in a church where the focus was always on the divinity of Jesus. The humanity of Jesus was not denied at all. It just wasn't talked about that much. So um, one more story to tell you, and then I promise no more stories that have anything to do with me will focus totally on scripture. But, um, but let me tell you about the first time I really thought about Jesus, his humanity. So everybody knows that I like Andrew Peterson, um, but there's a reason. The reason I started listening to him in the first place is because he reminded me of Rich Mullins. And so I have a Rich Mullins story. Uh, I love old hymns, and I really enjoy it with uh, when Kevin and the rest of our worship leaders uh, play them and as part of our worship service. And I really enjoy all of our songs. And I saw the songs that are going to be played as part of this worship service today, and there are some old hymns there. So I'm, you know, looking forward to hearing those. Uh, and there's a lot of great contemporary Christian music today, but it wasn't always like that, at least not that I was aware of. So when I was in high school, there were Christian artists and um, 
these names probably won't mean anything to you, but they were artists like Evie and the Imperials. Maybe some of you are my age, and they're like, oh, I hadn't thought about those people in forever. Um, and then when, when I was in college, it was, um, there was a band called Petra that some of you may have uh, heard of. Um, and then if you were edgy, you know, then you listened to Striper. So Striper was the Christian uh, version of heavy metal hair bands of the 80s. So they their hair was teased and they had makeup on and they wore uh, all kind of weird uh, clothes. Um, but I'll confess, I really... Um, I really didn't like the songs that I heard on Christian radio. Um, some of the songs we did in Bible study in college that we sang, I enjoyed, but I really didn't hear those on the radio. It was more like pop music. And I, uh, I grew up in the 70s, so I got to confess, I listened to Boston and Kansas and Leonard Skinner and uh, the Eagles and Jethro Tull. And that's a band, by the way. It's not a guy in the band. It's named after a guy that was born in the 1600s. Um, but anyway, so I'm listening to these bands that we call classic rock today, but back then they were just bands. Well, one day in 1991, I was waiting for a class to start. I was at the Swearingen uh, Engineering Center at USC, and it was a, a training class that I was taking for work um, to keep up with my um, professional development hours that you have to have to keep your uh, PE license current. And you know, off and on, I've been listening to Christian radio, and I just never heard anything that I liked. It was just too pop music sounding for me. So I decided to give WMHK another try, and that's that was the Christian radio station, uh, one of the Christian radio stations in Columbia at the time. And I turned it on, and they were talking, and the song came on. And this song, it just wasn't the typical song that WMHK played. It started off with an acoustic guitar, which I love. You know, I love that. And then this guy started singing, and it wasn't he was the best singer that I'd ever heard. Uh, it was the words he was singing and what he was singing about. So he was singing about Jesus. And I actually can point to that moment uh, when I first heard that song as one of the major watershed moments in my life as a Christian because it made me really, truly start thinking about who Jesus was more than just God that Jesus came with a purpose. And I've always known that, but I've kind of dismissed the humanity part of Jesus. So the song, uh, if you know anything about Rich Mullins, you probably already guessed the song. The song was Boy Like Me, Man Like You. It was the first time in my life I'd really started to think about how Jesus had emptied himself and came to earth as a human being. And it makes me think of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8 says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So it wasn't until I heard that song by Rich Mullins that I started to think through that truth that Jesus is both fully divine and fully human. And so I started thinking about that. And if you know anything about Rich Mullins, you know, he was, let's just say he was different. Uh, he wasn't like most of the Christian artists of his day. He wasn't like most of the Christian artists today. Uh, he wore jeans and white t-shirts and he was barefoot and he drove a Jeep and he's like my kind of guy. But he also had some quirky habits and some interesting thoughts. If you've read anything about him or seen one of his concerts um, online, his commentary in between songs at his concerts were were interesting, but they were definitely 
thought-provoking as well, to say the least. So here's some things about the humanity of Jesus I started thinking about after hearing that song, because Jesus is saying, this that I'm teaching you is not mine, but he who sent me. So I got to thinking about, you know, what, what did he mean by that? So thinking about Jesus' humanity, a couple things. Jesus really was born a helpless baby. He couldn't speak. He couldn't do anything for himself. If he could, they wouldn't have wrapped him in swaddling clothes and, and laid him in a, in a manger. And we know from Scripture that he was two years old or less when the wise men came to see him. And it wasn't, you know, Jesus, as even a, as a two-year-old, wouldn't have been able to say, hey, hey guys, thanks for coming to visit me. Thanks for the presence. I appreciate it. No, no, he was still, uh, at the most, starting to put words together. So he was learning. What the Bible does tell us from the very beginning is that Jesus grew in both stature physically and in wisdom. So right after Jesus was born, um, on the eighth day, when he was presented at the temple, and we're actually going to talk about what happens on the eighth day in a minute in our scripture passage, but uh, they returned to Nazareth. And in verse 40 of Luke chapter 2, it says, And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. So Jesus didn't know everything from the beginning. He had to learn. He humbled himself. So um, he probably did a lot of things that most kids do. That song makes you think about that. He was learning to walk and talk, and he was playing games, whatever games they played in Nazareth when, when he was little. And he played with other kids and his brothers and sisters. And But even though Jesus was a boy like me, like the song says, in some ways, in other ways, it was clear he was different than every other kid that ever lived. We see that from the next part of Luke where it tells us when he was 12, and this is when his parents were had brought him to Jerusalem for the Passover, and then they left and realized a day into the journey that Jesus wasn't in their crowd traveling with them. They went back to get him, and, uh, and they found him in the temple. And in verse 46 and 47, it says, After three days they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers and listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So Jesus, as a young boy of 12, is asking questions and responding quest to questions from the teachers, and it shows that he clearly has an understanding and He's gaining knowledge. This divine nature is revealing to the human nature of what his um, father is telling him to do. And you can see, you know, his parents are upset. Why have you treated us like that? And then we see Jesus' first recorded words in verse 49. He says, why are you looking for me? He said, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? But he said that, but then he went with his parents. They didn't understand what he was saying, but he went with them went back to Nazareth, and he was submissive to them, we see in verse 51. And then in verse 52, we see, it says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So at 12 and beyond, Jesus is still growing in wisdom and still understanding more about the Father as a human, that human side of it. And then finally, um, as an adult, we can see in Mark chapter 13, where Jesus is actually explaining about the second coming, his coming, the coming of man. He talks about um, tribulation and uh, all these things that are going to happen. Um, but then he says in verse 32 of Mark 13, 
But concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So here Jesus is an adult, but yet he's still saying there's something that I don't know. And Thomas Aquinas, he tried to explain away this apparent lack of knowledge with something he called accommodation theory. So what he said was that Jesus really did know, but the knowledge was too high and it was too holy and it was too wonderful uh, to explain. And, uh, and he, he couldn't explain why he couldn't reveal it to them at that time. So he simply told the disciples he didn't know. Well, that sounds good, except if Jesus knew the answer and he didn't, and he said he didn't, then he told a lie. And if he had told a lie, that would mean that he was not perfect. And if he wasn't perfect, then he wouldn't be an acceptable sacrifice for our sins. So, uh, thankfully, we know that Jesus never sinned. Matthew, or excuse me, uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 4, verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So, all of that to say that, so Jesus, just like the teachers of that day, he acknowledges that his teaching is not his own. But instead of coming from a rabbi, it came from the Father. It came from the authority. So there are three things we see starting in verse 16 that Jesus says. There are three things in his response um, that he will do in his response. He says, he gives the details of the source of his authority. He gives the goals of his teaching, and he gives the method people can use to test the validity of the teaching. So what he's saying in these next few verses, verses 16 through 18, is very similar to what he said back in chapter 5 of John, verses 43 and 47. They both, uh, in both places, the, um, the Jews um, assert that he's not teaching on his own authority. He tells them he's teaching on his authority, the name of God. In both places, he speaks of the difference between seeking glory from people and seeking God's glory. And then in both places, he appeals to Moses. So let's read uh, those verses 17 and 18. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of God, of, seeks the glory of him who sent him, is true. And in him there is no falsehood. So whether people follow Jesus, it depends on whether they are willing to obey him. And those who are morally willing to follow Jesus will intellectually uh, be convinced that he is what he says he is. He's the way, the truth, and the life, as he says in, later on in John in chapter 14. So Jesus is speaking, not in his own name. He's, he's not seeking to make himself great, but he seeks the glory of the one who sent him, the Father. In verse 18, he says what his goal is in his teaching. He said, the goal is uh, to seek the glory of him who sent me. So he is there teaching for God's glory, not his own. And then when he talks about being validated, he says anybody that is desires to do God's will, that validates their belief in him. And so they should also accept the Son. So when we begin to suspect that somebody is talking and trying to make a name for themselves, we, we become a little skeptical. So what Jesus is doing is he's seeking the Father's glory here. There's no selfishness. There's no corruption in his teaching. There's nothing um, that would make what he's saying untrue. 
but he's also not trying to please the crowd with his words and with his teaching. He's telling the truth, and he's knowing, he knows that it will eventually cost him his life. So when Jesus is teaching, here's some things. His heart's pure. His words are true. His hour is appointed, and it hasn't yet come. His purpose is set, and he will love God, and he will love his people, and he will go to the cross, and he will finish his course. Verse 19, he says, Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? And why do you seek to kill me? So what he's saying here is, and the question is, how would receiving and believing in Jesus amount to keeping the law? Um, well, the law prophesied that he was coming, and the Jews, um, their believing in Jesus would result in a fulfillment of that law the same way that Abraham's belief was reckoned to him. So Genesis chapter 15 verse 6, it talks about that. It says, Abraham believed and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And then in Genesis 26 verse 5, it says, because Abraham believed, it was declared that he had kept the law. So Jesus, in, in chapter 5, just a few weeks ago, we saw where Jesus declares that the scripture testify about him that Moses wrote about him, and now he's saying in verse 19 that trying to kill him is a failure to keep the law. Romans 10, chapter 10, verse 4, tells us that Jesus Christ is the end of the law. And so to reject Jesus is to fail to keep the law. So at this point, um, the it, it shifts a little bit from what who Jesus' authority is in teaching to um, a specific uh, instance that he talks about. So um, he says, you're trying to kill me, and the crowd there says, well, what are you talking about? He said, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? So there were those in the crowd that did seek to kill him. Uh, we don't know if they're saying this and just lying about their thoughts or if this is just the, the average person in the crowd that, that doesn't know that the leaders are wanting to kill him and and is asking, you know, why? Why are you saying this? And so Jesus goes into an explanation in verse, um, 20, let's read 21 through 24 there. Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I have made a man's whole body well? Uh, let's, let's stop at the end of, of 23 there. So this one word that he's talking about is more than likely the healing of the invalid that, um, that Brad covered um, a couple months back. And so he is saying, he's recalling in Genesis where um, the law is given that, um, that you are to circumcise you know, a, a male child on the eighth day. So Jesus in this in this part of the, the passage is actually using a typical uh, rabbi method of teaching where you go from the lesser to the greater. So he's saying that, you know, the Jews, uh, they were to circumcise their males on the eighth day, even if that day fell on the Sabbath. So that was the lesser issue. So it didn't, it didn't matter. The, the perfecting of the one part of the human body on the Sabbath was legitimate. Um, so he's saying if that's legitimate to do on the Sabbath, 
then how much more is the healing of an entire person? So that's the greater issue that Jesus is making the point about here. So circumcision uh, was viewed as a perfecting rite. One member of the body uh, by this rite was perfected, and, and so it had to happen on the eighth day. And so if that was the case, if one part of the body could be perfected on the Sabbath, then how much more so can, uh, can someone's whole body? Like how much more important was it that Jesus healed somebody's whole body, that it saves that person's life? So that's the point he's trying to make. And then in verse 24 it says, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So Jesus' opponents have been judging by just mere appearances. They're, they're, they're misunderstanding Jesus' character. They're trying to, to pin this uh, breaking of the Sabbath on him, but yet he goes in and explains to them, using the law, that he is not a Sabbath breaker, but he's actually the one that fulfills the Sabbath. So um, he's showing his opponents that they don't really understand the the weightier matters of the law, um, and they don't really understand the purpose of the law itself. And so their opposition to him was really superficial because the law was an, uh, the law actually enabled people made unclean by sin and death to dwell in a in a clean state in God's presence. So, circumcision was part of what made a man fit to live in God's presence. But by healing the man, Jesus had done something far more significant than circumcision in order to make that man whole and healthy to enter God's presence. And so the Jewish objections, the, the people's objections to him healing on the Sabbath, really didn't have any support in the law of Moses. And in fact, if they had truly understood the law, like we said, they would know that the law supported what Jesus did when he healed on the Sabbath. And, and let's look at this, this whole um, chapter 7 that we've covered so far, including what Aaron did last week. This entire passage is actually about how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament laws and promises. And he deserves to be believed. The Feast of Booths was about God's provisions. It was literally about Jesus. The temple in which the events take place is about Jesus. The rite of circumcision is about the promised seed, which is Jesus. The observation of the Sabbath and keeping it holy is about the rest that Jesus brings. The healing of the lame man is about the power and the glory of Jesus. Um, the Torah of Moses is about the coming Redeemer, which is Jesus. So keeping the Torah is about believing Jesus. And making a right judgment is about seeing the trustworthiness of Jesus. So listen to Jesus, seeing Jesus, um, and then believing what he says. It's about trusting him. So th at this point, the argument about circumcision on the Sabbath, which has kind of been around for a little while, it seems to settle the question. Jesus has settled it. And, and, um, and so the Jews, even though they may not totally agree with him, this is, this is the last time it's mentioned in Scripture. They still, there's still those that seek to kill them, obviously, but, um, but this is the, at a point where they kind of drop that as their tactic for, for bringing him to, to justice. So, so now uh, we move into the, the final part of this passage where uh, we're moving away from that subject of Jesus' authority, his Sabbath, um, and they go back to the uncertainty amongst the people. Um, 
and this is what Aaron talked about last week, is they're, they're saying, who, who is this man? Um, so verse 26 said, here he is. Uh, well, let me read 25 as well. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? So in this crowd of people, which included the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, and but also common folk like, like you and me, they're listening, and Jesus is saying, my teaching comes from God. And I'm healing on the Sabbath because that is appropriate. Um, and so nobody is calling for his life at that moment. And so the people are saying uh, nobody's doing anything. So the leaders uh, weren't doing anything to stop Jesus and stop what he was saying. So it actually caused some of the Jews in the crowd to question whether he was the Messiah. But um, no sooner had that suggestion been voiced that it was quickly dismissed, as we can see in verse 27. It said, but we know, you know, is this man the Christ? Is what they say in, do the authorities know that? They say that in 26, and immediately in 27, they say, but we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So that's an interesting comment there. Um, first, they're saying, all right, we, we know this guy. Um, and we know he's from Nazareth, and they knew he grew up in Nazareth. They knew his family home was probably now, at that point, in Capernaum. Um, if they'd done a little research, they probably could find out that Jesus was actually born in Bethlehem, and we know in Scripture it repeats that again later on in, in this same chapter in verse 42. But when they say that, um, that there are those that we will not know uh, where he comes from, where that statement is coming from, is there were some that believed um, because of some things in some Jewish literature actually in the fourth book of Ezra, which is not a part of the, the canon, and first Enoch, which is also not part of the canon. But there were some state, statements in there about this expectation of a hidden Messiah. And these traditions really, they talked about the Messiah. They said that he'd existed alongside God from, from the beginning of creation, but had been hidden from earthly view. And, uh, and that one day he would be revealed. And uh, so that was what some of the thought process was, and that's where that, that statement comes from, that, you know, we know where this guy comes from, and the Messiah is supposed to be, uh, you know, uh, unknown. No one will know. So, so they talk about that, um, and then uh, they say, um, also they, there are some, there is one scripture passage, at least in the Old Testament, where this, where they used to point to this hidden Messiah, and it's in Malachi three, verse one, and it actually talks about the Messiah's sudden appearance in the temple. Well, here is actually happening, um, but they use that to say that the Messiah's, that they incorrectly use that to assume that the Messiah's origin will be unknown, and Malachi three one should have been read in light of Micah five two, which clearly states where. The Messiah will come from that he'll come from Bethlehem so um, so as we continue on with the last few verses here uh, Jesus said uh, verse 28 so Jesus proclaimed as he caught as he taught in the temple you know me and you know where I come from 
but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. For I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So Jesus is saying, look, you think you know? You think you know who the Messiah will be? You think you understand about the Messiah? But the Messiah is standing right in front of you. And the Messiah is, is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, the Father. And you're taking the things that you think you know about the law and the things that you have added to the law, and you are missing the, the, the point and missing the fact that the Messiah is standing right in front of you. And going back to Sproul's statement, I think at this point, it's where we can see that the Jewish leaders of the day that are denying Jesus, maybe they've been educated beyond their intelligence. They reject the Son because they don't know God. If they knew what the law was really teaching, and if they really did know God, they would know who he sent and that he was standing right in front of them. Of them. So, uh, when you think through that, you know, when you see God, Jesus saying, "If you know, I'm not doing this on my own. I am sent from the Father. I come from Him. I know Him. He sent me, but you don't know me because you don't know the Father." And then finally, in verses thirty um, and thirty-one, it says, "So they were seeking to arrest Him at this point, but no one laid a hand on Him, on him because His hour had not yet come." So. They still wanted to arrest Jesus, um, but Jesus knew. It's one of the things that he did know, um, of, that his, um, his hour had not yet come. And God had ordained the time when the hour would come for his arrest and for his crucifixion and death. And God wouldn't allow that to happen before the hour had come. So, um, so in the final verse there, in verse 31, through all this stuff, he said, even though yet many of the people believe in him, they said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? So the, the typical crowd, the people in the crowd, they are seeing, they've heard what, this, what Jesus has been teaching. They know about his healing of this man. They, they know and have heard of the things that he has done, uh, the miracles that he's done. And, uh, and there were some that, that were believing um, because of these miracles. And uh, you know, Scripture says that uh, that faith based on signs is not it's not encouraged. You know, it talks about that in in chapter two and chapter four of this gospel of John. Um, but it's better than nothing, as it says in John chapter ten, verse thirty-eight. So there were those that believed him because of his signs and. And since they believed that the Messiah would be a prophet like Moses, and Moses performed a lot of miraculous signs in the Exodus, they kind of expected uh, that the, the Messiah would, would perform these miracles as well. But anyway, it, in any case, it would have been natural for the people to wonder um, after seeing Jesus' miracles and hearing about him, was he really the Messiah? So to wrap up, there are three things that the Jews, and we, but the Jews that were listening to Jesus and were part of this story that we've gone through today should have taken from this encounter with Jesus. One is that the source of Jesus's authority is God. And he came, Jesus came to seek the glory of the Father and not his own glory. The second thing was Jesus was not a Sabbath 
breaker. Uh, he came to fulfill the promise of the Sabbath. And the third um, is that Jesus came from the Father. And if you truly know the Father, you would not reject his Son. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this scripture today, Father, and just, uh, uh, just a few verses, but so much in it, and such important uh, things that you reveal in about your nature and about uh, Jesus' purpose and the fact that you love us and that Jesus came um, to be a sacrifice for us. And Father, we're just so thankful for that. And even though, uh, you know, we, we go through these passages and, and we try to dig in and, and really truly understand, Father, um, it doesn't matter what our education level is, Lord, as believers, um, you've given us the Holy Spirit. And Father, I just pray that we will rely on the Spirit um, to help us understand the truth of you, Father. But Lord, uh, I pray that anyone that hears this um, will overcome any inadequacies I had in, in sharing this gospel in this passage, Father, and that they will understand that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Son. And Father, he is the only way salvation father. Lord, we pray all these things in the name of Jesus.